Are your actions getting you closer to the thing that you want to create in your life? Or are your actions actually taking you in an opposite direction? And I think for many of us, if we look at that and say, oh, we want to be at point A, but really we're taking all the steps to get to point B, we can realize how easy it is to start to take the right action steps. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. It would be so amazing if you could leave a rating and review to help us bring you more episodes in the future. I'm your host, Rachel Jay, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She's a best-selling author of the books, Higher Love and Make It Happen. She's also the host of three amazing podcasts, Luna Lover, Higher Love, Love and the Middle. Welcome to the show, Georgiana Levine. Oh, thank you. What an opener. I know. <laughs> it's always so formal having to do the spiel and I feel like most of the time I can just say, hey, what's up, George? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm super excited to have you on the show because we're going to be getting stuck into all these awesome topics like personal growth and love and manifestation, which are all things that you are super well-versed on. And I guess one of the things that I thought was super cool uh, is your love of Ali Wong. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know who Ali Wong is, she's an American comedian and I I do really love her. She's um, got a couple of specials on Netflix and Baby Cobra is one of my favourites. So I just re-watched it recently and there was yeah. a little bit that I thought I'd just bring up because I thought you might find this funny. Um, the, she, she talks about this little bit about she's hoarding things and or, or her mum likes to hoard things and they're going through all this stuff and they find this Texas instrument calculator manual. And I think if you're in your 30s, you probably remember this bloody calculator that we all had to get in high school. Did you have to get that calculator? Yeah. 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 And I used maybe like three functions on there. Right. Exactly. So it costs like $200 or whatever. It's on the recommended list. And it was supposed to do graphing. That's that was the big thing. But I never used it for graphing. Like it no, was and it literally it was like two hundred dollars for like calculator that we used used for calculating things. So that we now use our iPhones for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> our iPhones do everything in. That's so right. what is it about Ali Wong that you really why do you want to do comedy stand-up like hers? Well, I've always wanted to do stand-up comedy because I think I'm pretty funny. But also I just as someone who does a lot of public speaking, I just think it's such a good skill to have to have that comic yeah. delivery when you're when you're trying to give a spiel on whatever it might be. So I guess that's where the aspiration comes from. I love Ali Wong because I really love female stand-up comedians and I think in the last maybe five five years we've had um, a slew of them come through and really make a name for themselves on the stage because back in the day it was just men and a lot of the jokes were very misogynistic, you know, and I think we've we've come a long way. So, I mean, Ali Wong does it beautifully because I feel like when Ali's on stage, she's being Ali. She's not trying to put on a persona. Some stand-up comedians kind of take on a take on a persona that's not quite them. Yeah. But I think we're just getting the real Ali when she's up there. I love it. Yeah, she's so funny. I've, I've, I, uh, I don't know. I had to watch it recently just so I could rejig my memory. But I thought that was so fun. Just that you were a fan of hers too. Yeah. Um, so your background really has, you've, you've had a real extensive background in publishing mm. and food publishing. And I've heard you talk about 
being in a or feeling like it was a little bit of a toxic environment or some maybe aspects of that time that you were in that realm was. And so I think, you know, a lot of us find ourselves in toxic environments, not necessarily in work, sometimes relationships and all that kind of stuff. But I'm interested to know what you can share about that time. Like what did it look like for you? What it feel like in your body? Because I think sometimes we don't really realize that we're in a toxic environment. So how can we, how did you become aware of it basically? Yeah. Well, I just want to make it very clear that my um, entire publishing career wasn't like that. Yeah. I had some really beautiful times at the beginning of my career. It was actually in the last job I had in publishing um, right before I started working for myself. And I guess that's what, you know, recognizing the toxicity did for me it has made me leave. Um, I think what was particularly interesting about this job and I think that many people can probably relate to it is that on paper or if I spoke to someone else about it it sounded like a dream job and a dream opportunity so I didn't feel like I had the capacity to say I'm actually not enjoying this this doesn't make me feel good um, because it was where I always wanted to be so you know who am I to complain about it And I think, um, look, I think with age comes maturity, but I think um, I was was in my late 20s and I just didn't think that I was able to uh, sort of walk away from something that that looked like it was what everyone else was striving for, you know. Um, Mm. I noticed that it wasn't serving me well in terms of my health when my health started to decline a lot. I mean, it was instigated by stress, but that soon started to manifest as physical ailments. I was injuring myself a lot. I remember, um, you know, two weeks into working there, I got the flu and I reckon I had it for about a year. Like I I just couldn't shake it. And it was that constant level of um, cortisol and like being in fight or flight constantly. Um, And I think, you know, it took a very brave decision for me to say, this is not the environment for you. And if you do want to succeed in your career, this isn't the way to get there because, you know, you're just turning into a shell of your former self. Yeah. I think a lot of people do also, I mean, I've definitely heard people say that they're very stressed, but almost accept that as that's just the norm. Like that's just yeah. how it, it's supposed to be, I guess, in a way. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, what I've learned over the years is that I don't think anyone should put up with constantly stressful situations, but I think certain people have a capacity to endure it more than others. And I certainly wasn't someone that could endure it for long periods of time without complete burnout. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was good that you kind of noticed that and was able to step away from it. A lot of people, they know logically that they're in a toxic environment, but there's something that kind of keeps them hooked in. And like you said, it was maybe the appearance of it or the perception of that role, right? So talking about, I guess then it's about finding your voice. I mean, you've spoken about this before, finding your voice and being able to make that decision for yourself to go, hang on a second, this isn't quite right because it didn't feel good for you. So how were you able to create those boundaries around your time and energy and and all the things that were making you ill? So interesting, you know, looking back on it, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I wasn't happy and I was sick and of course it was the right thing to do. But I think in the moment 
I I didn't know. I really just had to take, I really just had to take a risk. I was very lucky in that I'd had a couple of opportunities come to me while I was still working there that allowed me to go, okay, if I left this environment, I would have something to fall back on. Um, and I think that was probably the catalyst for me to say there is more than that there is more opportunity for you than what lies here. And this is the time to get out if you're going to get out. But in yeah. saying that, if those opportunities hadn't come to me, I think I would have had to have left anyway. And even if that meant, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but even it, even if it meant, you know, leaving this high-powered position in publishing and going to waitress in a cafe for a few months, that's the risk I was willing to take because um, I knew that my my health was was worth more than whatever job title I had. Yeah, it, your health was suffering. I mean, what are the yeah. guidelines that you can give people who might be struggling with something like this? I mean, not necessarily within work, but just yeah. to be able to create those healthy boundaries for themselves around their time and energy. And yeah, I mean, you know, it can be so difficult sometimes, especially I think as women as well, because I, I know for me, sometimes it's hard to say no uh, and not feel guilty about it, right? Yeah. Because you want to make sure that, every, you know, whoever you're working for or maybe it's a relationship or whatever it is that you also have this element of wanting to make sure that you're doing right by them as well. So yeah. how, how you know, what are your kind of key guidelines to setting those boundaries and doing it without feeling guilty? Yeah, I mean, look, it's really difficult. I think the first thing is having a certain level of self-awareness because, you have to be fully aware of yourself to recognize when you're out of alignment with yourself or when an environment is dampening who you are or, um, you know, uh, sort of getting in the way of your ability to thrive as, as the person that you know you are at your most authentic. And I think that was the highlight feature for me. It was like, I can't be myself. I can't function as a girlfriend as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, you know, let alone an employee. Um, So for me, yeah, the boundaries had to come into place and and those boundaries were about conserving my own energy. Um, Learning to say no, I was very much a yes person. Um, And I think for women especially, there's this idea that when we have boundaries or we say no, that we're being difficult. And I think it's about teaching women that we can be assertive and still be kind and still be polite and so the phrase that I throw out a lot is no thank you like no thank you you know and getting comfortable with that and you know starting really small you know when someone offers you um, you know, a second helping of dinner, just saying, oh, no, thank you. And then, you know, working up to something bigger, like I'd re- I really need you to get to come to this meeting. You know, it's really important that you're there. And I know that you're, you know, swamped with blah, blah, blah. And you say, oh, no, thank you. I can't be there. No, thank you. Yeah. So just yeah. getting comfortable with it and understanding that being assertive is not the same as being a bitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a huge narrative that goes through. I mean, it's, it's cultural, isn't it really? Like that yeah. kind of comes through that we have that, I guess, label, um, or not necessarily label, but just an assumption that's placed on if you stand up for yourself, if you use your voice and you say what you need, that it's a difficult, you're being difficult, but it, it's, you sort of have to do, you know, put yourself first in those situations where you feel like you're not in alignment like you were saying and it's toxic for you yeah now you're a bit of a manifesting guru this is what uh, (laughs) (laughs) you've you've written about you've spoken about a lot your book make it happen is all about this as well and 
you've got a really real world approach, I think, that is uh, is not super woo-woo. And I think yeah. some people get kind of get turned off by manifesting, just purely off the, the word manifesting, because it does, the perception is that it's a bit woo-woo. But I know you've probably been asked, actually, how do I manifest things? But I, I kind of want to take a different spin on it, because I think a lot of people are probably wondering, how did I make this happen in my life? This is not what I wanted. Mm. So can you speak to the idea of how do we stop manifesting the things that we don't want and what are we doing exactly that, that makes th- those things happen? Yeah. I Look, I think it's the same formula whether you're manifesting the things you don't want or you do. So it's understanding <laughs> how that works. The, yeah. the way that I sort of came to my teachings around manifestation was by the fact that I was manifesting a bunch of really, really unfortunate things and I thought, hang on a second, if I can make all of this really shit stuff happen, surely I can make some good stuff happen as well. Um, So there's a manifestation equation that I came up with and I'll, I'll walk you through it and then I'll explain how it works both ways. The equation goes like this, thoughts plus feelings plus actions plus faith equals successful manifestation. And it's only when all four parts of the equation are working together that manifestation is easeful, is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that it works is if you have an int- intention around something that you want to create in your life, which is basically what manifestation is, it's about taking ownership of the future that you desire, then you go through the equation and you say, are my thoughts aligned with what I want to create in my life? And a lot of the time you will find that they're not. You know, we say we want one thing, but our thoughts are telling us we can't have it, we're not worthy of it, we're not deserving, I'll never have that, you know. So sort of saying, are my thoughts creating my future or are they actually taking me in the opposite direction? Then we have a look at our feelings. How will having that thing make you feel? And can you start to feel those feelings now in the present moment? And if we look at it in reverse and the things that we don't want to create in our life, are we sitting in states of fear? Are we Mm. sitting in states of anxiety? Are we constantly in a state of worry and saying, can we start to feel the feelings as if that thing is destined for us, as if we're worthy and deserving of it? Mm. The, The third piece is the action piece. And I mean, I think this is the most straightforward part of manifestation. And unfortunately, it's the piece that a lot of um, manifestation texts leave out. And this is the action piece. It's the action that you take. So are your actions getting you closer to the thing that you want to create in your life? Or are your actions actually taking you in an opposite direction? And I think for many of us, if we look at that, and say, oh, we want to be at point A, but really we're taking all the steps to get to point B, we can realise how easy it is to start to take the right action steps. And then the last piece is probably the trickiest part of the equation. It's the faith piece. It's having trust in yourself, knowing that you're worthy and deserving of the things that you want to create in your life. And I think that's the clincher. So in the areas of your life where you do feel worthy and deserving of things, you're going to find it really easy to manifest. And in the areas of your life where you don't, where you struggle with self-worth, that's where you're going to find it really difficult. So really sort of addressing that. And I think if we look at the things we don't want to create in our life, it might be, the clincher might be this worthiness piece. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, all of those 
pieces, so thoughts, feelings, actions, they're quite tangible. Like you said, it was, it's easy to explain them. It's easy to kind of understand how they fit into the puzzle. Yeah. This faith piece, I think, is a little bit more intangible. It's very vague and especially for people who maybe are newer to the idea of manifesting, may be thinking, well, how, how can I believe that this is going to happen when firstly I don't see any evidence of it happening and and mm. you know they might be coming from that space of I need to see it before I believe it I, yeah I, how, how do I believe it before I actually see it ha- <laughs> you know manifest in my life and so you touched on their worthiness feeling a sense of worthiness and deservedness as well yeah. so what are the key points there to developing firstly our sense of self-worth then to then be able to trust that these things were worthy to receive these things. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a certain level, again, of self-awareness, asking yourself, what are my limiting beliefs? Why do I believe I'm not worthy? Where did this thought come from? Is it something that I've made up? A belief is simply a thought that we've had over and over and over again until we believe it to be true. Where did it stem from? You know, what is its origin story? And sort of doing a little bit of digging around that, asking yourself, is there a level of faith that I can trust in myself, um, but also in something greater than me? So I call it the universe. You might call it God. I think I used the example of Freddie Prince Jr. in Make It Happen. Like you can believe in <laughs> anyone or anything, um, but that the idea of this greater, greater source than you is that they have your back. And if the thing that you want is not manifesting, it's not because you're not worthy and deserving of it. It's because something better is on the way. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to sort of um, raising one's self-worth, I believe, you know, there's lots of ways to do it. Of course, some self-love and some self-care always really helps, but really, really digging into those limiting beliefs. And I think sometimes until we question them, they're so powerful. But the minute we look at them and go, what? where did this come from? How did this start? it slowly starts to dismantle and that can be that can be the key piece that moves you forward yeah it's really kind of looking at the beliefs that maybe also that aren't yours i mean they're usually yep. their thoughts or things that have been said to you usually from childhood that have been repeated and and just on repeat unconsciously in your mind where you don't even really know you know, that it, that it's been there the whole time. So you just come to it as if it's normal to you. So I think that's some great advice there to help us really cultivate that sense of self-worth and, and find that faith within us, but also in something greater than us as well, which definitely gives us some confidence. Yeah. So let's talk about, this is another key area of yours that you love to talk about. And I think you are a bit of a guru in this area too. Let's (laughs) talk about love and dating. (laughs) We're just here at the Oracle of George. (laughs) (laughs) This is what your book, Higher Love, is all about. Yeah. Um, And so I'm so excited for this chat because I can't really say, look, I've had, you know, a lot of girlfriends of mine, uh, single girlfriends, you know, we talk about a lot of stuff, but I can't really say that I've dated a lot, to be honest. My background is very much like being in longer term relationships. So I hear a lot of stuff. One of the the buzzwords I hear a lot of is, is narcissists, narcissists and people coming across narcissists a lot. So firstly, I'm keen to live vicariously through your dating stories. (laughs) (laughs) So please tell me about, because girls have come to me and clients have come to me and said, oh my God, this guy, he's like such a narcissist and blah, blah, blah. And so 
I know people encounter these types of people a lot. Tell me about narcissists and <laughs> what are the telltale signs and how do you not be attracted to a narcissist? <laughs> it's so it's funny. I don't know how I became the spokesperson for narcissists, but I seem <laughs> to talk about them in every interview I do, which is so funny. I have dated a lot of them. I've also worked for a lot of them, so I do know them quite well. Um, look, I think the, the key piece with this is what you said, like, why are we attracting narcissists? Um, it's a question I get a lot. It's a question I used to ask myself. Why do I attract narcissists? You know, what, what is going on here? Why do they come for me? What I realized, and you can replace narcissists with, you know, Scorpios or Sagittarius or some sort of star sign, a repeated pattern, basically. And when there's a repeated pattern of people that you feel like you're attracting, you've got to ask yourself, hang on a second. I think what is going on here is that you're actually attracted to them because you you are the common denominator here, you know. Um, yeah, and that's right. what I realised. I realised I was attracted to narcissists and I think a lot of women can relate to this because narcissists are very charming. They're very alluring. They're, their whole goal, and for them, you know, it's subconscious. They're not doing it consciously, but is to... Um, is to catch you, is to attract you. And they do this by glamouring you, which is a phrase I use a lot. And I realised it was like, that's what vampires do in all those vampire movies is they glamour you. But it's kind of what a narcissist does, right? They sort of put you under this spell to make you fall for them. And a lot of that is by being very complimentary and making you feel like you're the centre of their universe. But really that's just to get you in. And when, when it comes down to it, when you're actually in relationship with them, it's all about them. And that can be very confusing for a lot of, I say women, but I mean, some women are narcissists attracting men for sure. Mm. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess the takeaway piece here is if you do fall into that pattern, if this is something that happens to you time and time again, which it did for me, it's about breaking it and recognizing it and, and, and looking at someone and saying, are, are they a charming person or are they charming me yeah and I think that's the clincher Mm. and I think once I had that realization I haven't dated a narcissist in a really long time (laughs) (laughs) so I mean this is so fascinating to me because so can you tell me what the difference is between a charming person and someone who's charming you how do you know the difference then between oh. someone who's who's just kind of doing it for them, I guess, is what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, like, you, yeah. this is the thing. Like, you don't, you don't really know. But I think once you start to start to get to know what a narcissist is like, you can see whether everything is centering around them <laughs> or whether you're actually part of the equation. And this is when we have to take in those really cliche phrases like actions speak louder than words. If their words are the charming piece, but they're not actually acting on any of that and they're not showing you love or showing you how much they are in the relationship and how important you are to them, then it doesn't really matter what they're saying. And I think it's just getting cluey about that. And again, it's the self-awareness piece. It's seeing where you fit into the equation, you know, and not just getting caught up in the charm of, of what they're saying. Yeah. And I think you've talked about that before. It, it's almost flipping it, thinking about it as in how do I feel about this? Do I actually like this person rather than is this person choosing me to be in a relationship with them? Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing in dating, again, especially for women, and I know I'm talking in a very heteronormative way, so I apologise if, you know, there's lots of different ways of, of being in relationship with people, but from my perspective as a woman dating men, 
we do go into these experiences a lot sitting there thinking, oh, God, I hope he likes me. Mm-hmm. Um, when we really need to start flipping the switch, and this goes for everyone, men and women, no matter what gender or sexuality, saying, do I like this person? Are they making me feel the way that I want to feel in a relationship? Am I able to access the feelings I want to feel around this person? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it comes back to even before we were talking about self-worth, about setting boundaries and uh, knowing that you deserve. I think that that's the key also there, isn't it? You know, if you're going to look at it from a perspective of do I like them? Are they worthy of being with me? Then you have to have that development of your self-worth knowing that you deserve to have a relationship with someone who is it's, it's a, you know, there's two people in a relationship. It's not just about one person. So exactly. you need to kind of, that all kind of factors in as well. Yeah. Now, the one thing that you do like to talk about a lot as well is, um, you know, love story narratives. And mm. I think um, this sort of, you know, stops a lot of people because they've got very rigid stories about how their love life should be. And we've been told many, many stories, um, I mean, through Hollywood rom-coms. I know they're some of my favourite films. What are, I'm curious to know what your favourite rom-coms are. Oh, my God. I have such a long list. I don't know if I could give you like my top, 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 but I have to say um, one of my favourites is The Family Stone. Have you seen The Family Stone? I haven't seen The Family Stone. Who's in that one? Oh, my God, it's so good. And it's a Christmas movie too, which makes it even better. Um, (laughs) It's Sarah Jessica Parker, um, Rachel McAdams, Luke Wilson, a whole bunch of people. Diane Keaton. It's great. Oh, wow. It's great. Okay. I have yeah. to check it out. One of my faves is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yeah, that's a good one. I that's really a good love one. that one. Yeah. So we've got this narrative that we are being shown often. And actually there's seven beats to this rom-com story, Sitch, actually. Yeah. We, won't, we won't go into the whole structure because I know it's a lot. But there are different elements of the story that we're presented with as an audience member. And if you kind of, you know, make it a bit brief, it's basically the guy meets the girl. Girl, they fall in love, something happens, yeah. he loses the girl, that he's got to do something to win her back and then <laughs> he wins her back and then we're all happy at the end. And roll credits. Roll credits, right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes you get bloopers and that's fun as well. But it's such a satisfying story arc, yeah. right? And, and we come out of it and we're like, oh, yeah, like that feels good. And so I think, you know, we kind of take that unconsciously. But I am interested to know on, on on your take on this, mm. how this narrative is affecting our perception and expectations about how our love life should go because, you know, we, we see this messaging a lot. Yeah, and like you said, it, it is unconscious. Like we, we don't think, oh, I just want to have a love story like I see in the movies. I mean, some of us do do that. But <laughs> I think that like unconsciously we're, we're thinking about it all the time. And, you know, I even spoke about in Higher Love. For me, my love for rom-coms went way back to being, you know, a five-year-old watching Lady and the Tramp, you know, like Disney movies. It's still mm. that same narrative. It's the meet-cute moment. It's the plot twist it's the thinking I'm going to lose them and then winning them back and then rolling the credits and I think when our love lives don't follow narratives like that we start to think that they're not right or we're not experiencing real love or you know whatever the story is that 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 you're running and the thing is we run these narratives in our head about what love should look like what love should feel like and as soon as it doesn't meet up with that we dismiss it and we walk away from it. And I think what I've been trying to get women and pretty much everyone to do is to have a look at what narratives they're running and then rewrite a story 
that's actually going to serve them, that's actually going to work for them. I think with the rom-com thing, you know, I've got a lot of girlfriends who really focus on that meet cute moment. It's the, it's the moment where the two people, you know, the two um, love interests meet for the first time. And it's always really cute and it's always really quirky. And I've had girlfriends who have dismissed partners because they met them on an app or they met them in like a really boring way. It doesn't make a cute story. And that's not what they'd envisaged for themselves with the one, you know, yeah. and that that's just... <laughs> I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense, really. <laughs> yeah. But even the concept of the one, I mean, that's probably something that we get from narratives like that as well. Mm. And then, you know, even aside from the meet cute, but just usually in, in a film, the crux of the movie or the turning point of the movie is when the guy or, I mean, it doesn't have to be the guy loses the girl, but where yeah. for some reason there's some issue and they're not together. And, and so... I, I don't know whether you found this, but do women that you've spoken to talk about, you know, if, if a guy is not being in the relationship, that they have to try and win them back? Yeah. Back into the thing. yeah. I actually have a real world example of this, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my current boyfriend, who I'm dating at the moment, he, um, we went out on a couple of dates that went really, really well. And then he ghosted me, disappeared, never heard from him again. And at the time, I had a bunch of girlfriends say to me, don't worry, I think he's going to come back. Like, you know, don't hold on to that. You know, um, I felt really good about this one, you know. And I said to them at the time, because I was so, I'd just written Higher Love and I was so used to, you know, falling into this romantic comedy story where I'm like, please don't say that because he's disappeared and me holding on to that, thinking that he's about to swan back in and be all romantic is not helping the situation. Mm. <laughs> Two months passes and he does swan back in <laughs> very romantically. <laughs> and, you know, we are together now and we're very happy. So, I mean, that is an instance where it has turned out. But if someone takes that story and goes, oh, well, that happened to George. So I'm just going to wait. And every guy that ghosts me is the one, you know, he'll come mm. back, back. And that is what gets us into trouble. And I know I've just fed you a story to fuel that, but this is the thing. It's like, you can't, you can't hold on to that stuff. It's, it takes us back to, um, he's just not that into you, yes, you know, I it was the that. book and then the movie where it's like, this is the exception to the rule. It's not the rule, you know? Yeah. 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 It's such a good thing to remember. And maybe it's more a case of just allowing things to play out the way that they're going to play out, not holding on to a specific way in which you think it's going to turn out. Because it can turn out the other way, like you've just given that example. And that's the faith piece, Rach. It's like, mm. can I surrender in this moment and say, if he's meant to come back in, he'll come back in and no amount of me pushing or manipulating or trying to make it happen is going, is going to make it happen, you know, and this is, this is why action and surrender go hand in hand when it comes to manifestation. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about surrender? Because I think this piece, because, you know, make it happen. Like we've got all these things that we can control, obviously our, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. We can control all that faith. We can also control the surrender piece, I think maybe yeah. could even be the hardest part of it because that is letting go of mm. the control. Yeah. And they do work hand in hand. Manifestation is this dance between action and surrender. So when you've taken the action steps, when you've done all that you can do, there has to be a point where you sit back and trust, have faith, surrender. If this is meant to play out, 
if this, if I've done all that I can do, it's now up to me to let go and what's meant for me will come back to me, basically. And I think that's a very important thing to hold on to with relationships that aren't working. When you've done all that you can do, you have to let go. You really do. And if it's meant to play out, it will play out. And if it's not, then something better is on the way. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. I definitely, and in my experience, it definitely has been the case where if it's meant to be, it will just be. And it flows very easily. You don't have to force it. It just kind of happens. Whatever's meant to be will kind of just play out in the way that it's meant to be. And you Mm. kind of know, I think you'd know deep down when you're trying to force something or not, you know. Yeah. Um, So it's a really, really important point to remember. One thing you've talked about is having this intense passion and chemistry for, but you know, especially when we meet people straight up and, you know, there's attraction and all of that kind of stuff, but then also needing to feel this level of safety and comfort with the Mm. person that you're with, right? Oftentimes I feel that these two aren't really brought together, uh, you know, having passion and chemistry and then safety kind of seem like kind of not opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're sort of different pieces to the puzzle. Mm. Do you think that you can have both in a relationship and how do we do that? How do you have both? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do think you can have both. Um, I think that with chemistry sometimes we think that chemistry equals forever or chemistry equals the one. And I have to say most of the time it doesn't, (laughs) more often than not. Um, But I do think that you can have both. And I also think that you can allow chemistry to build. We call it a slow burn. And I think, um, and look, there's no no rule to this because there's always an exception, right? But I do think that if you're not experiencing extreme chemistry with someone from the beginning, it doesn't mean that that chemistry is not going to grow. And I do think well, for me anyway, and for a lot of women I speak to, the safety piece, the security piece, the consistency piece, like knowing who's turning up every time you see them piece, is so much more foundational for a long-term relationship than that initial chemistry, which can burn out really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you kind of want to think about what is more important to you in terms of a long-term relationship and can you build on that? So if you have that safety, you can you can build on that and the chemistry you can build on as well. It's just where do you want that starting point to be? Yeah, exactly. All of these things that we've been talking about really comes down to self-awareness. A lot of the pieces yeah. need self-awareness to really grow and be what we want it to be in our lives. And one of your philosophies is self-awareness is your greatest superpower. Mm. So let's take a little, um, I guess, piece of self-awareness. This is a little segue off talking specifically about your intuition, because this is one piece that gives us special messages or things that maybe our logical mind doesn't quite know yet. And you've talked about this concept that you've used to discern the difference because a lot of a lot of the time I think people don't really know how to, how do I know what is my intuition? How do I know it's not just my mind thinking? How do I know that it's not just my fear talking? Yeah. Can, can you share a little bit more about this concept that you've used to discern the difference? Yeah, I mean, I've got a few different concepts around it. Intuition is something that takes practice. Um, when we know ourselves really well, it's a lot easier to discern between our intuition and, say, our ego, for example. 
I always say, you know, like when you trust a friend, like when you look to a friend for advice, it's usually because you respect them, you love them, you admire them, you trust them, like all those things. They're the things that we need to feel about ourselves. And when we can trust ourselves, respect ourselves, love ourselves, that's when we find it a lot easier to hear the voice of intuition and not just hear it, but act on it, you know, like trust it implicitly. Um, So again, it comes back to that self-worth piece. It's like, what are the parts of you that you don't feel worthy enough to to trust in your own voice, in your own guidance? Mm. Um, There is a technique that I use to explain intuition. It lands with some people, it doesn't land with others, but I'll walk you through it. It's called the inside-outside rule. I always find that when intuition is speaking to me, it's this real feeling of expansion it's like a feeling that's coming from inside of me and expanding out of me yeah it feels true it feels true to me it feels light it feels expansive Mm. when it's anxiety and ego and the mind it almost feels like an energy that's coming outside of me towards me like I'm feeling suffocated by it like it doesn't feel like it's mine and when we feel that it's about questioning where it's coming from and how we can flip how we're really feeling. For me, sometimes what I'll do when I'm trying to decide, let's say we're trying to make a decision or like it's a choice that we've got to come up with, I sit with both choices for like, you know, half an hour to an hour. Sometimes I sleep on them. And I'll usually find that if I've told myself, this is the choice I've made, but you haven't actually made it yet, but this is the choice I've made, and then check in with myself half an hour later and say, how do I feel about that? If I'm feeling heavy and I'm feeling icky and I'm feeling anxious, it is the wrong decision, Yeah, you know, and it's just really tuning into your own sort of, I guess, physical indicators, but also energetic indicators, you know, how it feels in your heart, how it feels in your chest, how your breathing is, how your posture is, and sort of getting familiar with yourself. And this is the self-awareness piece. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like those ways to do it. And I've the inside out one is really nice because I guess you can definitely tell the difference of when things are expanding and coming out as opposed to shrinking and contracting this. Yeah. And even in your in your physiology, you know, kind of opening out your chest and then um, contracting inwards, there, there's a distinct difference in the way that you hold your body when you're in those two states as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I also really like this whole thing about checking in as sort of taking a one of the outcomes maybe you're you're deciding on something and taking one of them and seeing how you feel I definitely do this as well and it's almost as if you take that as if it's already happened so just pretend you've made the decision how does that feel for Mm. you and if you give it a little time you will know how you feel about it and then you change it over to the other option and see how you feel about that and it definitely gives you a very distinct difference I feel in Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the other important thing about intuition is you actually can't make a wrong decision and really trusting in that. So even if you make a decision and you feel like like time time shows you that it it wasn't the right one, it's always the right one because it's either leading you into a lesson for you to learn for next time so you do things differently. It's creating an experience for you, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, it's an experience that's allowing you to evolve and grow as a human. And I think what where I used to get stuck with my intuition was I'd question it and worry 
that I wasn't going to do the right thing. But just trusting that no matter what it is you do, it's always the right thing because it's taking you on the path for you that's going to get you to your next destination. Yeah, and I think that's true, again, uh, not locking into a particular way or story that we think things should happen because like you were just saying, I think that might be difficult sometimes to to accept because it if you do make a decision and you figure out later that, it, okay, that maybe wasn't in line with my intuition but it still is taking me to the next step, that was all part of it anyway as well. So it's about reframing, I guess, how you're thinking about, you know, tuning in and all of those kinds of things. Mm. So one of the other things that I do like to talk to my guests about is rejection and failure because this is something that we all experience and I know that, you know, sometimes the fear of failure or the fear of being rejected stops us from doing the things that we truly desire. So I'm curious to know what your biggest failure or rejection has been and what have you learnt from it? It's a really good question. I think it would have to be... It would probably have to be a relationship rejection and failure, I would say. Um, And I mean, I think, I think from every heartbreak we experience, we always learn so many, so many valuable things. You know, I think about where I am today um, and the relationships that I have now and, and how different and how evolved they are to the relationships I had in the past that I hung on to for dear life, thinking that I was losing something that was, you know, so important and that I'd never experience again and I'd never be able to improve on. And, you know, and I think if you can apply that to anything in your life, whether it's like a career failure or, you know, whatever the failure might be, I think we can all say that in hindsight, right? Like Mm. there was so much growth from it. There was so much evolution from it. So, yeah, I would probably say like holding on to relationships that were decaying and that I couldn't, I couldn't allow them to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, all, you know, heartbreak in itself is, is um, painful and we all learn lessons from it. But I think, again, it's probably a story thing too, right? Yeah. It's a story that we're telling. It's in, in comparison to a story that we're telling ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think again, it's that faith and surrender piece. It's like, it's not going to get better than this and not having faith that you're actually worthy of, of more than something that's in decay. Yeah. 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 I really love that. What's your life philosophy? So if you had an overarching statement to which you try to live your life by, what would that um, be? <laughs> it's, an, it's a Polish, a Polish um, proverb and it's not my monkeys, not my circus. And I basically, it basically means like, you know, like when something's going on in your life and you're becoming so consumed by it, like stepping back and going, do you know what, that's actually not my shit. I'm just going to concentrate on my stuff. And that was me for a really long time, like getting really kind of caught up in not necessarily other people's drama, but I guess putting my energy in places where it wasn't being used to the best of its ability. So I say that proverb to myself quite a bit, not my circus, not my monkeys. Yeah, I really love that. It's probably, it's so, it's so fascinating. I think that's one of the most unique ones I've heard actually when I asked that (laughs) question. So I really like that. Not my monkeys, not my circus. So just making sure that, yeah, 
where you're directing your energy is in line with where you want to go, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show, George. It's been such an amazing chat. And I feel like there's been so many little nuggets I feel that people are going to get out of this chat. So I'm um, very, very grateful to have you on the show. Where can people find all your amazing work? Oh, well, thank you for having me on the show, first of all. Um, My website is jordanalevine.com. All of my stuff is on there, the podcast, the books, everything. Um, If you want to follow me on social media, the best place is Instagram and my handle is at jordanalevine. Jordanalevine. So make sure you check it out, guys. And you've also, just going to say as a little side note here, you're in the process of working on your latest book, Make You Happen. I just finished it. So it's the sequel to Make It Happen. It's called Make You Happen. <laughs> and yes. it's the it's the next step in manifestation. So it's it's like an advanced manifestation guide. And it really is about the self-awareness piece. So it's saying we don't manifest what we want until we first acknowledge that we manifest who we are. And yeah. so really understanding who we are changes the manifestation game. Yeah, amazing. Oh, that's yeah. so exciting. When's that coming out? Do you have a date for that? Yeah, um, it will be May 2022, which sounds like it's ages away, but it's not. It'll come It really, really isn't. It will come out so quickly. So yeah. make sure you check out all of George's stuff to catch up on all her current work, which is Make It Happen and Higher Love. And then we can all be excited for Make It Happen to come out next year. Yay, yay, yay. <laughs> thank you again so much, George, for joining me on the show. And thank you guys for listening. Make sure you screenshot this episode and share it to your IG stories, tag Jordana Levine and at Rach Active, and we'll catch you next time on the Rach Active podcast. Mm-hmm.